All right, guys, we're talking monsters today. What is your favorite method of movement to give your homebrew monsters? Are you flying guys? Are you burrowing guys? Slim guys? How do you like to surprise your party with movement? Okay, so my secret weapon when I need a, a any kind of monster to be a little bit more deadly, um, I just need to up the CR a little bit, is I make teleportation a bonus action instead of part of a movement or an action. Um, so teleporting in and out is my favorite thing in the world to do. If I'm going to homebrew a monster, it teleports. If you're good with descriptive words, I think that the scariest movement speed for a player to encounter is borrowing. Yeah, I'm with you. If you want to terrify your players quickly and easily, make a monster borrow and describe what they feel but can't see. Tremor style. And it's not just what they can't see. It's what they can't target. Yes, that's mm -hmm. the biggest thing about burrowing. Then your entire encounter becomes ready to actions and guessing and hoping you got it right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're not playing D&D &D anymore. We're playing whack-a-mole. <laughs> Welcome to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another It's a Mimic episode, where we continue our conversation on monsters in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. I'm Adam, and with me today are Brad and Jeff, and this episode is called Monstrosities, the Golden Oldies. In this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, this panel of Dungeon Masters is going to get back to the basics with the most classic D&D monsters that have spanned multiple editions and haunted our imaginations for years. Sure, there are dragons and beholders and zombies, but what adventurer doesn't want to hunt down an enemy that can make the very ground shake, sink a sword into a screeching horror that stalks his prey blindly, or blow up a frustrating creature that hits you where you least expect it? Before we get started, I want to ask you guys, what's your favorite non-bipedal monster in D&D 5th edition? Do you want to roll for it? Yeah, let's roll. 15. 3. 14. All right. Jeff, you're answering your own question. All right. I am a big fan of one of the big nasties, uh, the Remoraz. Used properly, it is terrifying for your players. Lots of D&D monsters may try to grab a PC and run away with it, but the Remoraz is one of the scariest because you can't easily follow them when they grab the wizard and dive into the earth with them. Also, depending on your players, describing the multitude of legs skittering across the ground will get the hair up on a lot of people's necks. I like that. Uh, I guess I'm next with the 14. I actually really like to go with standard creatures, things that they recognize from, you know, lore that exists outside of d because I play with a lot of new players. So something like a griffin is a favorite of mine, where right? you got flight, you got talons, they're immediately going to recognize the creature and they're going to think they know how I'm going to run it because they've seen it in other forms of media. And when you suddenly start picking up characters or dropping NPCs or bearing a beak instead of just claws or talons, it really throws them off. That reminds me, uh, closely related to Manticore in the beginning of Dragon of Ice Fire Peak is perfect. Oh, yeah. Great creature. I low-key love Manticores because they are intelligent enough to speak as well. They just choose not to because they hate your fucking guts. Yep. Um, Manticore, I have used Manticores to great effect in previous campaigns to the point where at one point my party, I don't want to say befriended one. Um, it showed up. It didn't have a name for itself because why would it? doesn't need one. He's the Manticore. So they called him Leon because he looked like a lion. Mm -hmm. We can all thank Terry for that fucking nonsense that derailed my series campaign for 20 minutes. But um, but no, the Manticores tend to latch on to the strongest group 
and because of uh of the fact that the heroes were slaughtering everything in their path it's just like all right i'm going to stick with you guys until you are no longer the strongest i'm going to team up with the other guys and then i'm going to kill you so keep being the strongest until you're not and it made them have this weird ally that they were always concerned is going to turn on them at the last moment so every time that they had a moderate to easy fight yeah we have a manticore Anytime it's going to get real hard, they know it's going to get difficult. They have to distract it and send it away so that it doesn't see them laying face down in the mud. Otherwise, Dan gets eaten. <laughs> I can think of worse things. <laughs> so anyway, before we get any further into our conversation on uh, monstrosities and these, these classic creatures, let's jump into an ad break. Snap into a Slim Jim. We've previously covered quite a bit in our discussion on monsters in 5th edition, for all of those episodes and more, you can follow or subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and dozens of other podcast apps. And if you'd like to support us, you can donate through the website, check out our store, or join our Patreon and get access to other episodes and series. If you'd like to pay for some ad space on It's Mimic, or just send a shout out to a friend, please reach out to us through our email and website that are listed in the show notes below. Before we jump into what to expect on Patreon this week, let me give a quick shout out to our newest subscribers. Mark D. Harris, thanks so much for subscribing. Hellscape Wanderer, you sexy bitch, thank you for joining us on Discord and subscribing. Duncan M., thank you for subscribing. Jennifer Widmer, thank you. And of course, Ryan M. Brandos, thank you so much for subscribing. I look forward to continuing our conversations on Discord, but for now, let's get into what to expect this week. We had originally identified seven monsters in this episode that we wanted to discuss, but normally we can only fit three into an episode, and this episode is already jam-packed with four. So this Thursday, the silver adult tier of Patreon subscribers and above can jump into the second part of the conversation where we cover the Cockatrice, Displacer Beast, and Rust Monster. And then on Friday, I continue January's breakdown of all the online content that Wizards of the Coast has released for our Bronze Young tier and above. In Episode 1, I surprised myself by supporting one of the most overlooked Tomb of Annihilation supplements, but was sorely disappointed in the PDF that I was most looking forward to in 2017. This week, I dig into all five of the 2018 and 2019 releases, which really vary in scope, content, and quality. And the last piece of news that I have is that Casey has done an amazing job of redesigning our website. We've moved our episode guide over there from Reddit, and it's easier to navigate here. We've also added a section for bios where you can see everybody's beautiful faces and learn a little about what makes them tick. And of course, you can access our store, contact us directly, or listen to episodes right from the homepage. Head on over to check it out when you get a chance, but for now, let's get back to the show. So the very first thing that I want to talk about is what I consider to be the most uh, straightforward and um, common kind of creature that you're going to see in Dungeons and Dragons, and that's the Owlbear. I think everybody has run into one of these guys at one point, uh, and they are so classic that they got featured pretty heavily in the new D&D movie trailer. So Owlbears, for the two people out there that don't know, um, are bears with owl features they are large they are the size of a bear they got claws like a bear but they are covered in these big thick feathers and they've got a face 
uh, of a very, very pissed off owl. Um, before I, I go any further, guys, do you think owl bears have the ability to turn their head around like 270 degrees and shit? Why the hell not? Undoubtedly, yes. I have used it in sessions. It doesn't say it anywhere in the lore, and there's no mechanic for it, but I fucking love that idea. It's real creepy, too. Um, I feel like it would be a crying shame to not have that be a thing. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So um, there's quite a lot of lore for these creatures, even though mechanically they're real simple. I'm not entirely certain why they are as classic as they are, but there's a lot of history around owlbears. They've been around since they're the very beginning, and they seem to be a favorite of a lot of people. Um, one of the things about it that I start right off with in the lore is the fact that these guys have a signature screech, a uh, not just a hoot, but a screech. There's no mechanical component for that, but I feel like it's something that you also need to address. If you come up on an owlbear, it's not just roaring, it's screeching loudly and deeply as it comes at you, and it will come at you because these guys are aggressive as all fuck they will always attack they will even attack larger creatures larger creatures will try to avoid them because these guys are vicious they are one always 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 on um on the aggression mode they never calm down and they are always going after the kill this makes them particularly deadly because they're usually active at night They don't come out until the sun starts to set, which means that you should probably hear them before you see them. And by the time you see them, it's already too fucking late. Here they come, which makes these guys great for ambushing parties who have uh, set up a camp in the middle of the woods and they don't know that they are in owlbear territory. These guys do prefer thick forests that are difficult for other creatures to navigate through. Um, And it says that specifically in the lore that they want it. They want there to be as few escape paths as possible for their prey, which means very, very thick underbrush and foliage that I assume that it's the owl bears able to just charge right the fuck through to catch people because they, as much as they're an owl, they don't have wings. They don't fly. They're just a bear with, with feathers, right? So, but they're big, they're strong and powerful and they're fast. So I assume that there's, even though there's no charge mechanic, you can treat them like they're going to run full bore at people. And possibly ignore non-magical difficult terrain in their territory. I would absolutely allow them to do that. Uh, they don't, see, they don't have a climb speed, but they should, because, I mean... They're bears. bears. I have allowed them to climb trees. Yeah, so, um, and like, there's mention of trees in the lore, but they clearly live in caves. So there's a weird dichotomy here, which makes sense. It's a monstrosity. I'm going to get into that in a second. The area, I see them as den creatures, right? That's why the caves are mentioned, right? Like bears, they rest in dens. Sure, they can climb a tree, but bears don't live in trees, right? They're too big to really spend time up there. Yeah, and that's just it. They do have caves, but the caves uh, are known to reek with the smell of rotting meat and decay. They're just littered with bones and skulls of their kills, and it's a gory mess in there. Um, the owl bear also stores part of its kills up in trees and in bushes, and among rocks and outcroppings, and then it drags the rest back to its lair for consumption to go back and get the other stuff later, which means it'll also eat rotting meat, so it's a little bit scavengery as well, which makes me think that these guys are probably always fucking hungry. Oh, yeah, no it's doubt. It. And, I mean, owls, right? They're a bit of scavenger birds as well. They prefer a fresh kill, but they will scavenge, so that's probably where they get that portion from. Yeah, as much as this is an apex predator they're because they're fast and they're strong and they hunt at night um they 
do seem to have these weird little contradictions here and there. Um, apex predators tend not to scavenge. These guys will. That makes them more versatile, I guess, for DMs to be able to use in different circumstances. Like you can have just more excuses to introduce an owl bear. But one thing to keep in mind is that, and again, another part of this that they are versatile, they hunt solo or in pairs or with young who are unable to fend for themselves. So they can tend to be in large numbers or moderately large numbers um, traveling in packs. Although there's no rules for that, they don't get pack tactics. They do tend to travel in, in groups if they have a bit of a family unit, which means that just because you're fighting one doesn't mean you won't fight two or three later. Yeah, but if you're a DM and you introduce a pack with young ones, their players are going to take that as a pet. They're going to try anyway. They're going to certainly try. And there are some um, there's some lore that supports that because these guys are intelligent as dogs. And while it is possible to train one to be a guard or a mount, it's damn difficult because they're consistently hostile. The lore says that some settlements on the outskirts of civilization have been known to race owl bears, but it's common for these owl bears to just turn on their masters and eat them in front of an audience as well. Sometimes they can be used in gladiatorial arenas, which seems a little bit more on par for these vicious murder machines. Elves have used them as guards beneath their treetop cities, which again makes no fucking sense to me because these guys should climb their bears. Hobgoblins like them as mounts, which again makes no fucking sense to me because you get wargs who are intelligent, speak your language, and are just as vicious and deadly. And hill giants and frost giants like to keep them as pets, which does make sense to me because hill giants are, are gross and they're crass and they're blunt and they will 100% just beat an owl bear into submission and keep it as a pet and they go sick them and send the owl bear off to, to kill and eat half of the party while the hill giant eats the other half. They're like the people who keep a pit bull on a chain outside their house. Yeah, and don't treat it well. No, right? absolutely not. The other side of that, too, is the size disparity. Even your Goliath player character is only going to, like, the, the owlbear is, what, five times heavier versus a hill giant that, if it disobeys, it's just going to get punched in the head by a fist the size of a watermelon. Yeah, and that's, that's something to keep in mind as well. These are... They're large uh, monstrosities, but they're, I think, large for the size of large. I'm going to say these things are much bigger than a horse. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to be polar bears, not black bears. Oh, absolutely. There are some conflicting origins about where they come from uh, in the owl bear section. And then there's a really clear fucking answer later on, or rather earlier in the book, uh, in the monster manual. It says that some people say a wizard made them. Elves and fae claim to have known owl bears for thousands of years and that they've always been in the Feywild. However, interestingly, Wizards of the Coast actually lists owl bears in their monstrosities explanation when it breaks down what all the different um, subtypes for the creatures are at the beginning of the monster manual. I'm going to quote this directly. Monstrosities are monsters in the strictest sense, frightening creatures that are not ordinary, not, only, not truly natural, and almost never benign. Some of the results of magical experimentation got awry, such as owl bears. So there you go. The lore in world says nobody knows. But I mean, the guys that write the fucking book said, oh, okay, we know. And a wizard did it. I mean, given that bit of information, what you've just told us with the elves claiming they've been around forever, that leads me to think it's elven wizards that created them and are covering up the origins because they don't want to admit what they did. That sounds like a whole lot of uh, dwarven propaganda there right there. 
So there's a fun little quote in here as well uh, from a gnome uh, in the Monster Manual that says, the only good thing about owl bears is that the wizard who created them is probably dead. I, I like that. I don't know why they are so uh, prolific. These things, uh, like bears themselves, they like they breed, but there's not shit tons of them. You don't get overrun with bears the way you do with coyotes or anything, right? Um, but there are owl bears across the Feywild and the Material Plain, and they exist. Um, there's a snowy owl bear version up in Icewind Dale, and then they're also down in the forests around um, Waterdeep and Baldur's Gate. Like they're all over the place. They're quite prolific. They're not densely populated, but they're around. So I mean, they must, they must move. They must have huge territories, and they must fuck. And wow. I could, I couldn't find anything about the mating habits of an owl bear. But I assume it's more bear than owl. And I assume that they give birth to live births and not hatching eggs. Given the fact that the body is bear, I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah. So um, when I'm sitting here looking at the stat block, they're unaligned, which makes sense. They're pretty um, bestial, right? A lot of the monstrosities actually do have an alignment. But an owl bear almost feels like a beast in a lot of ways. As a matter of fact, the only really magical thing about them is the fact, well, A, their fucking existence, but B, uh, they have dark vision out to 60 feet, right? And dark vision, with the exception of a couple of bizarre choices in among some of the beasts, dark vision tends to be magically um, created. You tend to be blessed or gifted dark vision. They have a moderate... AC, considering their challenge rating three, uh, a 13 armor class is enough to challenge a, a party of, you know, in tier one adventurers. Their hit points are around 60, depending on how well you roll, and their speed is 40 feet. That's the only speed that they get. I really wish that they would be able to climb as well, but the good news is the snowy owl bear uh, from Rhyme of the Frost Maiden gets only one little tweak, and it's they get a swim speed of 30 feet. So like a polar bear. Yeah. They have a, a boost to perception. Like I mentioned, they have dark vision. They don't speak languages. They have keen sight and smell, which just gives them advantage on perception checks that rely on sight and smell. And other than that, they have a multi-attack, one with its beak and one with its claw. And the beak does 1d10 plus 5 piercing, and the claw does 2d8 plus 5 slashing. They're both plus 7 to hit, which means a level 3 or 4 party is going to get hit and it's going to hurt. These guys are formidable. They're going to knock down your D6 and D8 hit dice um, tier one players, but they're not going to get a TPK. They're just not built to be able to do a shit ton of damage to, to everything, and they're aggressive enough that they will fight to the fucking death. Yeah, they Which, don't run. <laughs> yeah, these guys are not going to back off unless they've got young as well, but I think even then they are going to be incredibly hostile. These are are predators that do not give up. I wanted to talk about owl bears before we get into any of the others because everything um, that's a beast and most monstrosities have a claw and a bite attack. In this case, I call it beak, but it's just it's it's a bite attack again. These are standard things that we see for the monstrosities, and I was bitching at Jeff earlier um, before we started about how. Unless you have long sword or short bow, you have bite and claw. Right. Welcome to fifth edition. Yeah. Bite and claw. Um, Slam being the only other one. Yeah. Uh, occasionally you'll be lucky enough to see fist, which always makes me laugh. That's a whole different avenue of the internet there, bud. <laughs> um so owl bears are classic. They are interesting because they are ferocious. 
they have a significant amount of lore, more than some of the other more fantastical creatures in the monster manual. Um, but there's not a whole lot that that jumps out to me to say, hey, this is a campaign level monster. I include these as a touchstone for my players to remember that we're playing Dungeons and Dragons and not, you know, Pathfinder or Shadowrun or Call of Cthulhu. This is a D&D monster and you fucking know it, right? Like everybody who plays this game has met an owl bear at one point or another. So let's grab dice because I have a couple of questions. Well, I got a 14, so I'm talking to myself. Your questions. Yep. So uh, first is, have you ever fought one before? And my answer is yes, dozens of times. I'm never a player, and even I have multiple times as a player fought owl bears. What do yeah, you guys same here. I'm with the 12. I'm next. Uh, definitely fought them before. And as a DM, I have definitely used them pretty much in every campaign I've run at least once. I have not fought one, but I have used them as a DM. I've already spoken about what I think makes them famous and a favorite D&D monster. Do you guys have anything to add in that, Brad? Uh, just the fact that they're unique to D&D uh, and they are iconic. And the other thing, too, is that they're just really easy to picture. Uh, and I think that's kind of why people like it. Right? The name, it's right in the name. It's an owl bear. Like, everyone's going to come up with their own way that they picture it, probably. But at least you kind of know what you're getting. I think that's why people like it. Which kind of makes it easy to slot them in with other traditional mythological monsters like griffins and manticores. They basically follow the pattern and took the scariest traits of a couple animals and mushed them together. It's just, you know, it's easy to take this D&D specific thing and add it to the mental catalog of mythological creatures. Yeah. I always wonder, you know, why these things exist. I mean, beyond the fact that writers like to just slam two animals together and make it work. Like, what compels a wizard to say, I'm making owl and a bear fuck? I don't like, think they even do that. Maybe it's genetic splicing, magical genetic splicing. Yeah, but I, why? Yeah, but why? But why, why not? <laughs> they're bored. <laughs> Wizards get bored easily. They're always looking for something to do. And they're like, hey, this might be interesting. Let's try it. Do you think that... I don't think wizards are as smart as people give them credit for. I think they're actually really idiots who just know enough to be dangerous. They're they're absent-minded professors, right? Yeah. Like, I, I think a lot of the times, like, I'm going to make an owl bear because I want a really, really, really big omelet. Oh, they give live births? Fuck it, release them into the woods and move on to the next thing. Yeah. There's there's also the argument to be made that these are wizards that dumped wisdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it could also be far less intentional, and it could be that they weren't even trying to create a creature. They were trying to do something completely different, perhaps, like make a potion that turned into an owl bear instead of whatever enchantment they were working on oh that's fun like the very first owl bear is actually the wizard that drank a potion and poofed into an owl bear like oops yep. oops forgot to carry the one in my formula and now he, here he I- was trying to make a potion that would give you both flight speed and strength so he took aspects from each creature and it ended up just being transformed i like that i think that's fun do you guys have any unique insights about how to play one of these creatures i mean i'm going to lean into the the ferocity factor Clearly, these guys are going to come screeching out of the darkness at night and attack the smallest thing to drag it off and eat it later. Yeah, yeah, your gnomes are in trouble. That's basically what I'd say. Your smallest creature is going to be taken away for food. These things are relentless. They don't stop until they get what they want or they're killed. And it's not that they're scared of the big ones. It's just the no. little ones easier, right? Yeah, they know they're going to be able to get away, right? They're not going to try and take on a whole pack themselves. They're going to hit and run for food. 
Right. So well, we say they don't run, but what they're really doing is they aren't running because they're losing. They only run when they have what they want. And they they want got what they win. wanted and now they're done. Yeah. Well, their wisdom is pretty high. Their intelligence is like I say, it's like dog level, yeah. right? But their strength and constitution are through the fucking roof. And this means that I think even if they see a party of adventures, they know they can win. Yep. Or it's at least even, and they're going to try to just pick off a part of it, right? And maybe maybe it's not the smallest one. Maybe it is the donkey that's tied to the tree, right? And that's the thing that it goes to. These guys would totally attack mounts. 100%. Oh, yeah. Before they'd attack the people, I'd say. I think so. I think that if there's a campfire and you have someone on watch and they're sitting there at, you know, four in the morning, they would hear the screeching coming, come out of the darkness, and then suddenly one of the horses just drops in a spray of blood and then gets dragged off into the shadow. Well, I was going to say, you're usually camping in the like in an open field or in a cave or something like that. You're going to tie your horses up kind of on a tree on the outside. So you're just going to hear a whinny and then all of a sudden the horse is gone. I which, really like that. Which I guess would, you know, I can move that into my own insights on how to use an owlbear. If you're putting your players in a circumstance where having a mount is really important, either they need to move through an area quickly, they need the, you know, the pack carrying ability of their horses, um, use an owlbear, attack the mounts. If, you know, if they need four horses and now they have three, now what? Yeah. Would you let your players tame one? I, uh, I wouldn't. I know that, that Dan let us tame owl bears way back in the day, Brad, when we were playing in that campaign. Yeah. That's right. Um, I don't like the idea of taming an owl bear because you get a tank as part of the party, and I'm not a big fan of it. But if I'm going to do it, you have to draw animal handling checks every freaking day because yeah. these things are so temperamental. And if you ever, ever, ever roll a one or fail by more than five, roll initiative. Roll initiative, <laughs> and and it may just swipe if you fail by more than five. Um, and then it's a deck save to get out of the way. But if you roll a one, it's going to come at you. Like it, you are now the next meal. You have pissed it off, and I just, I just wouldn't make it worth it to tame an owl bear. Yeah, I think especially if you're playing with new players, I would probably allow them to tame a young one. Uh, but that said, I would probably find a way for that thing to be taken out of action before it has a chance to grow and become an actual thing that you have to deal with. Right? You neuter the stats. They have a young one. Here you go. You get your little pet, and then you also rip the party's heart out by taking away their pet. Teach them the loss of D and D young. <laughs> now. I don't know, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think any of the three of us have Russian heritage. So mm. the next sentence out of my mouth is more apt than if any of us were. Would you try to tame a grizzly bear? Because I, I, I have actually got Dave relatively domesticated, and I think that I get half <laughs> points for that. that. Absolutely. I'd give you three quarters. <laughs> I would not be opposed to letting them try just so they can understand how completely unfeasible it is that it actually works. I think this is one of the first times that a new player hears the phrase, you can try. Yeah. Okay, so I know that we've um, each got a couple of other classic monsters to go through, um, and we were burning through this episode pretty quickly on just owlbears, which shocked me, because owlbears are a nothing stat block, like I said. They're yeah. they're strong, but there's nothing to them. By, they're, by the time, they're indistinguishable from any other beast. Yeah, and that's just it, is they don't have that that monstrosity gimmick beside the fact that it's part owl, part bear. So let's uh, let's grab Dice Roll Initiative and see um, what the next monster is that we're going to cover. All right. Five. Uh, Fourteen. I, I also got a five. Let's roll off, Jeff. Eighteen. Fifteen. Huh? I'm going last. Oh, boo. Okay, um, so you're up first, Brad. All right, I'm up first with a 14. 
So I'm going to lead out with the bullet, uh, one of actually my favorite creatures to use. Uh, the CR5, it's going to be a little bit, I guess, early second tier at this point, right? End of first tier, early second tier. Um, these things are awesome. If you want to imagine what they look like, the alternative name for them is land sharks. They have basically a bullet head with a massive jaw, big sharp talons. Um, let's give it a little history because then you can really try and imagine what this thing looks like. Uh, like all of these monstrosities, or most of these monstrosities, they're believed to have been created by a wizard, but it's not confirmed. And the, they say that the bullet is the result of a mad wizard's experiments. This is trying to crossbreed a snapping turtle with an armadillo and then a little bit of demon icker. So if you want to imagine in a demonic, Snapping Turtle Armadillo Cross. That's kind of what you're getting here. Uh, aptly named, they do have a bullet-shaped head and the scales, effectively, of an armadillo. Uh, they're well-armored, big jaws, big teeth, big claws, and they're coming out of the ground for you. So the most distinctive fact you'll find about a bullet is the fact that they have a burrow speed of 40 feet. Um, and they pair that with a standing leap ability, which allows them to either long jump 30 feet or high jump 15 feet from a standing start. So you can imagine these things, given the fact that their movement speed is 40 feet, they can go underground for 10, 15 feet, jump out and land on top of you out of nowhere. Uh, the fact that they do burrow underground means that they also have tremor sense. So they know where you are when they're underground, but you'll probably have no idea where they are. You can use your perception checks, but it's going to be pretty tricky to actually figure out and locate down where these things have gone once they've gone underground. Um, as far as the stat block goes, these things are going to be pretty hard to hit. I mean, I mentioned that they've got natural scale armor, so they come with a armor class of 17. And if you roll about average, you'll end up with 94 hit points, but you can go a lot higher than that. We can get these things up to about 150 hit points nearly. And then I mentioned as well, the burrow speed is kind of their big gimmick. If we want to look at attacks, uh, Adam, you mentioned pretty much every creature has a bite and a claw. These guys, interestingly, despite the fact that they have been given massive talons, they don't have a claw attack. They only have a bite attack, but they have one special attack called Deadly Leap. And as long as they jump at least 15 feet as part of their movement, which I mentioned is that they can do that just as a straight up and down jump if they want to. But they, if they jump up and land on your square, you're making a DC 16 saving throw for strength or dexterity, which is interesting. You get to choose if you want to just kind of stand there and try to shock absorb it, or if you're dexterous and trying to step out of the way of it. Uh, but if you don't make the save, you're going to be knocked prone and take bludgeoning and piercing damage, averaging about 28 points of damage. Uh, if you do manage to save, you're not going to be knocked prone uh, and you take half damage, you know, usual saving throw stuff. Uh, and then you'll also get pushed back five feet. Unless there's nowhere to be pushed back five feet too, then you just get knocked prone and you're literally standing under this thing as its jaws are opening and closing above you. Uh, my One of my other favorite facts about these things, do you know what their favorite prayer, prey is? I'm going to give you guys a guess. Have you read this part of the Monster Manual? What um, is the favorite prey of a bullet? I mean, it's clearly a halfling because it's everything's favorite prey, right? Yeah, it legitimately is. They love halfling meat more than any other meat. And it's never happier than when chasing a plump halfling, according well, to the words in the Monster Manual. Well, I'm going to introduce them to Kenders because I know those are fucking coming. And yeah, I think I'm going to team up with the bullets on this one. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're all on the side of the bullets. Is this like the Cornish game hen to the chicken version of humanoid meat? Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> that's exactly it. Um, bullets are generally solitary hunters. Uh, they tend to live alone and they have a territory that's about 30 square miles uh, is what the book says. They basically they just hunt for food they don't care they're not smart creatures they're not they have no intelligence effectively they are just 
hunting creatures. Um, so they will basically move in where they find the settlement, terrorize that settlement until the settlement moves out or they consume everything in their path. And then they uh, move on to the next spot. There's not really any recorded sightings of Bullet Young which has people assuming that they probably have some underground nesting area. Um, that said, the mating habits of the bullets has been noted as being basically the male finds some carrion, you know, flesh of deer, boar, halfling, whatever it can find, leaves it out until it makes a real stink. And then the female will be drawn to the scent and they'll mate. Uh, usually at the end of the mating, the male is killed and consumed by the female. As is tradition. Female, yes. That's, as is tradition in many creatures. That's my fetish. <laughs> we don't kink shame here so you're telling me you've never had any because uh if that's your fetish and you're still alive <laughs> i have i have three kids drive from that what you may <laughs> how have you survived i have questions and i don't want the answers actually magic <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's effectively those are the big points on the bullet um you know the burrowing they love eating halflings and they die after they get laid i like i like the fact that everything they burrow but they also jump Yes. Right, like between the standing leap feature and the deadly leap action, you can uh, you can assume that these guys, their legs must be so powerful. The fact yeah. that they can burrow as fast as they can run, which is faster than a human, is I I don't I never liked the idea of them being land sharks. They were always underground rhinos to me. Yeah, and that's what the art supports, and you know the history of it, right? I mean, armadillos and snapping turtles, neither of those are a shark. So it's interesting that they call them. But I guess it's that underwater hunt, right? You don't see them coming until they come up in these jaws. If you look at previous editions and the artwork there, they look more shark-like. This is mm. just the more streamlined fifth edition. Everything is round in fifth edition. It's smooth and round. And that is just a common thing with the artwork. I remember when devils and demons used to be hairy and bristly and gross, Right. Edder caps used to have like long spider-like hair all over them, and now they're they're just smooth and bald like Dan getting they out found of the, a wax bar. Yeah, pretty much, right? So there's um like the artwork does support land sharks in previous editions. It's weird that they changed the art and not and still included that detail. Mm -hmm. Um is but uh is there anything else that stands out to to you guys i mean their con is fucking huge i don't know the con why. is massive they like massive hit points and a natural 17 ac at fifth level right cr5 feature players are gonna have a decent time trying to hit these things not to mention the fact that you're sending them underground so they won't be able to hit, hit them half the time like yeah, that, that's something to bring up um when you have full cover area of effect spells can still hit you there's not a rule that i've seen anyway i, I would have to look into this um but if you're underground, can you, like, I would just say that you can't be targeted hard stop. No, you can't be targeted. And the area effects aren't going to hit you. They're going to hit the ground above you. That yeah. said, when the blet comes up, right, if that area effect remains, then it will be susceptible. But if it's underground, I would have it be completely protected. That's when you start getting into the wording on the spells. Yeah. You know, do you have to be able to see it? Yeah. Does the spell say that it ignores cover? And I mean, there are some things like you can send a fireball down a hole. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, that's one thing. Let's bring this up right now. Do bullets leave tunnels behind them? Oh, 100%. I don't think so. It doesn't say so in the book. I would say in the moment of combat, like it's eventually going to close in behind them. Actually, you know, I think the terrain matters, right? Are you are you in soft dirt and grass where it's going to kind of close in behind itself? Or are you in hard pack where it's probably more likely to leave a tunnel? Well, it doesn't say anything about being able to burrow through stone like another creature we're going to talk about today. 
Uh, no, but it does say that uh, that their preferred terrain is uh, hills and mountains. So I would assume that stone is, or at least yeah. loose or, or gravel. Maybe not granite, but like clay and gravel can move through just just fine. Um, do you think they'd be able to to bust up through? I don't know, like a cobblestone road. Yeah, I would certainly allow it. So, do you think that we could call these things street sharks? Absolutely. Perfect. <laughs> That's all I needed from this episode. Um, let's grab. Uh, let's grab dice and roll initiative. Twelve. Seven. Got another three. Okay. Um, Brad, do you have a quest surrounding these uh, these creatures? Well, I talked about how they uh, like to infest and terrorize towns, right? They pick an area and pick on it. If you're coming through and there's a bullet in the area, you know the whole town knows about it. And they're going to be paying handsomely to have a party get rid of this thing before they have to up and move. So that would be my hook. If you're coming through a town, they've got a bullet infestation and they need it taken care of. Just just run Tremors 1. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> Jeff, do you have any a quest or a, a plot hook? Yeah. A local wizard is trying to write a bestiary and needs information on the land sharks that roam the nearby grasslands. Track one down and observe it while it hunts without killing it so the wizard can record their findings for their book. Um, I've got one. Now, land shark, uh, they've got this natural armor and you are running an evil campaign and you guys want better armor or uh, thicker shields or whatnot. And you have this halfling captive on a rope. <laughs> it yeah, is time to go bullet fishing. <laughs> so climb a tree yeah. and go and go fishing for bullets. <laughs> no. no, I'm hoping there's a Goliath character in this group with <laughs> super high strength so they can go fly fishing with them. <laughs> 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 Just <laughs> is there any role-playing insights that you have on this guy, um, Brad? I mean, they're they're pack hunters. These are beasts in their truest form. Um, right in the book, it says, right, they're not intelligent creatures. They don't have anything other than a bloodthirst. So, a role playing as the creature itself, no, they're not. They don't communicate. They don't do anything. They're just here to eat. Jeff, I mean, I agree with that. I came up with some apparently something different for all for that particular prompt, but that's okay. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have anything real great. Just, you know, use the abilities the best you can to scare the crap out of your players. Use the the diving and then jumping thing to make things unpredictable. One thing that I would say about these guys, and I don't have anything in the lore that supports this necessarily, but um, I assume that they chitter. They don't growl or screech or scream. They're underground. I think about other things that live and burrow underground, like moles and whatnot. And they squeak and chitter. And I just think it'd be great to hear the chittering noise and the the snapping clicking of their beak. I And I can't help but think that that noise would come from grinding their jaws and their armor plates against each other. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that, um, that these guys have a phenomenal um, way of communicating among each other, right? Especially well, they, have the tre- they have tremor sense, right? So you got to imagine it's almost echolocation like underground, right? Where they would feel the vibrations of something like a chitter more than they would hear it. And where they're solitary and have large territories, they would be looking out to make sure they stay out of the range of another bullet's chittering vibrations. Oh, yeah. Well, they hunt each other is also in the book. I should have mentioned that. Like bullets consume other bullets as biggest and strongest winds. So they're not pack hunters at all, then. No, no they're in any sense. No, they're Pac-Man frogs. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, what uh, what exploration um, hooks or clues might adventurers uh, have to keep an eye out for when it comes to these creatures? I mean, we talked about tunnels, and even if there aren't tunnels, there's going to at least be signs of disruption wherever they come up. Uh, you may even feel some tremors under your own feet. You don't have tremor sense, but you may feel the ground shaking if this thing's anywhere near you. You're you're going to find churned earth. You're going to find blood-stained grass and rocks with no carcasses around. Uh, missing livestock, uprooted trees, that kind of stuff. I also like the idea of the players coming upon, I don't know, like an outpost in the middle of of the wilderness like it's it's civilized it's a fort out there but it's been abandoned and the doors are locked from the inside and it takes a while for you to realize that there are um the wooden floor planks have been burst up and now your players are being hunted inside a fort there's a, a specific scene in um starship troopers where they are like all of the main characters go into a fort on a planet and they can't figure out what happened to everybody else there. And they're, it's because they're getting attacked from the ground, from underneath, right? Instead of from above. And I think that that could be really atmospheric and fun and put kind of a little bit of fear into them as they don't know what it is until suddenly a large bullet just starts busting up through the ground. Also watching the barbarians scramble up onto the top of the table and scream <laughs> might, might be entertaining. Um, is there a big combat tactic that stands out to you besides just the jump on the guy? I mean, that's the big one, right? Hit and run. Right? These things aren't necessarily, they've got the armor, they've got the hit points to stand and deliver, but they aren't going to, right? The tactic is hit, run, get underground so you can come up and do it again. Um, we talked about the owlbears, right? Wanting to grab some prey, take it away and eat it. Mm -hmm. I could imagine a combat like this going on for a long time where the blet doesn't even necessarily surface every round, right? It might. Oh, yeah. You got you got some small NPCs in the party. The blet's going to take that NPC, drag it underground, try and consume it. And the party's going to have to figure out if they can chase it down a hole or if they just have to wait for the thing. They have tremor sense, too. And, you know, they may be dumb, but they're still an animal. They may drag the yeah. halfling underground and then leave them there and go get another player character yeah. because they can go back and find it with tremor sense. They know where it is. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point as well, is they're going to move half their speed. So they burrow 40 feet. So they have to be 20 feet underground. They pop up, grapple, and then move 10 feet underground because you have to move, you know, half of your movement speed when you're grappling someone. Right. So you're leaving these, these characters that do not have a burrow speed underground. And if it's, like we said, soft land, now they're buried. And can't breathe. The ground is crushing the breath out of their lungs. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, the mechanics for that in fifth ed, they will be absolutely fine. You have 10 right. fucking minutes, but like, <laughs> but, um, but it is a scary and provocative set piece to do that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about when they're above ground, which should happen sometimes, especially because your big show case, you know, move is this, this leap. But the problem is that it doesn't have multi attack with the deadly leap. So yeah, yeah. it can jump on you and squish you and knock you prone, but you're just going to stand up on the next round. Yep. So I feel like you're never going to get the opportunity to cash in on that prone, on that prone condition, right? right. No one's going to stay prone. Um, so I think that you're just jumping, you're leapfrogging onto people to do that damage. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think you're using bite very often um, unless that jump is going to provide an opportunity attack. Or if you have, if you want to be the DM that bites the unconscious player character, I would still jump on them because uh, that's more fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's more fun. 
So in many episodes of this show, and I believe it's Terry that's been the biggest voice for this, we've harped on don't use open terrain in battle. It makes fights too easy. This is your chance to use open ground as your battlefield. Flat, waist-high grasses. You can't see the ground under your feet. All you feel is vibrations, and an attack comes out of nowhere. Almost every other creature we ever talk about, you want to avoid flat open ground, and this is how you can use it to best effect, is with something that doesn't care if there are trees around. It just, you know, you can use that common disadvantage, in this case, to your advantage. Yeah, and sitting down and watching things like a shark movie or Tremors or another one that sticks out in my head is is the sequel to Jurassic Park, Lost World, where they've got all the velociraptors in the long grass. Oh, yeah. And they're just popping up and it's just hit and run and dragging all of those mercenaries down to their death, like one after another. Like these are scary set piece moments that you can replicate. I love the idea of the village running from the bullets. And there's two or three bullets that are that are fighting for territory here that all for this moment, team up for a decent buffet, right? And so when you were watching the 30 villagers run across the field and then this one just gets dragged underground and then at an initiative count 20, two more go down, right? And yeah, you want to you want to humble your party? Don't even let them ever get a chance to fight this thing. This thing is just going to take the this village away and the players are going to have nothing left to do except to try and hunt this thing themselves. Mm-hmm. This thing's not looking for the party. It sees them. It says, oh, crunchy army, or I don't really want that. I'm going to take the soft, squishy ones, and I've got enough food for now. I'm out of here. Yeah. Like, I would I would almost introduce the thing and never give the party a chance to fight it until they decide to hunt it down themselves. So, Jeff, what do we have next uh, after the uh, bullet? Thank you, old next. Our next nasty is the hook horror. Now, this is not what Captain Hook does in his retirement. This is hook horror. Is that the hooker whore? Yep. So... These guys are nine feet tall with a vulture-like head, a spiny carapace like a beetle, and long arms that end in a single hooked claw each. They are described as being both an an omnivorous scavenger, pardon me, and a pack predator in the fifth edition lore. They can communicate with a complicated language of clicks and clacks from their claw arms tapping against their carapace. To me, this means that a creature that will stalk and hunt creatures when they have greater numbers, but will retreat if outnumbered and can tell, you know, the others in the back to scatter. They know they can live on vegetation if they can't get meat. They're not going to fight a pitched battle here. They live in extended families led by the eldest female and defend nests of their eggs. They're egg-laying creatures. In D&D history... These guys go all the way back officially to 1981, although their origin predates that official status by a few years. They were described, interestingly enough, in 88 as being strict herbivores, which has changed at some point in the last 35 years, which is kind of interesting. Um, Not sure what that change signifies. It's also said that they occasionally will farm particularly interesting algae or fungus for themselves in their little colonies. Uh, These are underdark creatures, so they're subterranean caverns that you're going to find these guys in. Uh, As far as their stat outlay, they are a large creature. They are neutral. They don't have any particular um, evil or good alignment. Uh, Strictly right down the middle neutral. Uh, Armor class 15, pretty moderate, you know, a little bit, you know, for challenge rating 3. 75 hit points is pretty stout. A challenge rating 3, 30 foot. Uh, walking speed, 30 foot climbing speed. 
They are strong and have a decent constitution. Interestingly enough, they have an intelligence of six, which is pretty high for a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today, and a solid above average wisdom. These are not stupid creatures when you compare them to a lot of other things you think of as dumb brutes. Um, they have blind sight and an extended dark vision range uh, above and beyond what a player character typically gets. And they have their own unique hook horror language. They use echolocation. They can't use blind sight while they're deafened, which is something that could be an interesting tidbit for your player characters to learn if they know they're going to face hook horrors in the future. They do get keen hearing perception, uh, advantage on perception checks that rely on hearing. They have a multi-attack which is two hook attacks, uh, plus six to hit, 10 foot reach, and a pretty solid average of 11 damage. At challenge rating three, getting hit by this guy twice is no joke. Yeah, and a plus six to hit, he's going to hit. Yeah. I really like these guys. Um, they're they're classic underdark creatures, right? That, I don't know. I These are one of my personal favorites. Um, let's, uh, let's roll initiative. I want to hear what your thoughts are. 10, 5. I got a 14. So uh, my first question was is going to be, you know, do we have a plot hook or a quest or something uh, about these guys? And I keep thinking about um, what sort of magical or interesting part of the body we, you could harvest off of them. Um, but for the most part, for a hook hoarder, it's just the hook. You get the hook. It's weird they don't get a beak attack, but I mean... I had the same thought. I guess their hooks are just more iconic and they're going to slash twice with it and then just eat and pick afterwards. Um, if you know you have a 10 foot reach with a hook, why would you get your face anywhere near your bad, your, your prey? Yeah, it's, just, wanna... it's, it's protecting a softer part of your body when you can get way closer to them without getting your, your soft parts. Yeah, but if you can get a hook into something and bring it in and get a good chomp out of it, right? You get a grapple with those hooks. It's True. weird that you don't get a grapple or a trip mechanic with them. But again, right. that's that's fine. That's shit that I would expect out of 3.5 or even, you know, AD&D. When it comes to the 5th edition version, if I'm looking for a plot hook, eh, eh, uh, I don't um, get it. Uh, honest, okay, so... Jeff, hook horror. <laughs> okay, so um, when it comes to hook horror, the number one thing that I'm going to do is just uh, exterminate them. They are preying on the the small settlement, um, and I think that they're. I would ramp up the level of uh, of scariness. You said they're nine feet tall. Yeah, that's fucking monstrous. Like that's huge. huge. So I'm going to have them preying on Sverf Neblin. Oh yeah, and they hunt in packs too. I don't know. They're no joke. Yeah. And CR3 hunting in packs, I mean, four or five of these guys are going to act like a CR7, yep. CR8 level um, encounter. So just attacking the Sverv Neblin, who are you know, technically evil, but may be cowed so much that they require your party's help and can be, you know, negotiated with as long as you kill these monsters that are attacking us. So... What I came up with for Plot Hook, um, given their relative intelligence, their above average wisdom, and the fact that they have a language, uh, this to me says that they could potentially be trained or be an ally. The leader of a thieves guild is trying to decide if your group is trustworthy enough to work with. The leader has a pet hook horror that is apparently an, an excellent judge of character, but he'll only trust you if Hooky likes you. Well, it's interesting because the intelligence modifier on this is higher it has higher intelligence than a hill giant 
which means yeah. these things are sentient, intelligent creatures. Yep. Yeah. You can almost treat them like Chewbacca as opposed to a pet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Companion. Which is not to say that Chewbacca was was stupid by any means. In fact, he was pretty smart. But just the like inability to communicate. Only some of the people around will be able to speak book horror or understand what they're saying. Which makes it really interesting. You can have the Han Solo character that's the only one that can really understand the language. But the only way to speak back could be fun if instead of the hook horror learning the person's language, the person that understands the hook horror has like some device that they can click and clack and scrape against to talk back to it. Oh, since you're artificer now. Yeah. You get a yeah. couple of clamshells he's, he's clicking together to be able to talk back. <laughs> Three seashells. Yeah. Different use. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking coconuts, like... Uh, yep. Uh, Monty Python um, it. Yeah. Yeah, Monty Python it. Uh, for me, uh, my plot hook will be the fact that their their eggs are a delicacy, right? There's a bit here in the in the monster manual that talks about how they are ruled by a female. They have a central, well protected nest where the eggs are kept. Like they they do have a home. They are pack creatures, so their nests are well protected. But there's some sort of sh- crazy chef who swears that these are a delicacy. The best things that he can serve his customers, and he's going to pay you a handsome handsome reward if you can bring back a dozen of these eggs for an omelet. Like a like a drow high court will oh, yeah. stack these. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's entertaining. Um, anything about role playing specifically for these guys? I mean, for me, it is a fact they're more intelligent. I would run them as aggressive beasts, but only because they're more like a barbarian than they are like an actual like monster creature, right? Like they will come in to hunt and they will move quickly, and they are excellent um, attackers and hunters, and they're a little territorial. But there is an intelligence. You chase one back, and there are four more waiting for an ambush. They will have legitimate tactics, um, which means they're also going to be able to, they might understand you, Ooh, even if you don't thought. understand them. Yeah. So for me, the big thought to add on to that is that, you know, they are an intelligent creature. They are sentient to some ability. And we do have information that says that they farm certain foods. These are creatures that will retreat, that if they are going to be out hunting with a pack they're not going to be doing this that close to their protected nest. They're not going to want to draw a threat back home with them. Um, you know, I wouldn't treat them the same way you would a wolf or the same way you would an owl bear. They are going to, to act differently. Like like Adam said, more like a barbarian tribe than like a pack of wolves. Yeah, they're they're going to be primitive, but they're not they're not going to be and I think they'd be savage too. Right, just oh, yeah. from just from the way that their physiology leans, but uh, but they're yeah, they're not dumb. You can get no. your group to encounter some moral quandaries with a creature like this. Absolutely, that was my thought as well. Is I mean, these things are they have hooks for hands, so they're not going to be tool users in the same way that other creatures are. But their intelligence is there. They're I think savage or primal are probably the best ways to describe these things, right? They're just, they're not evolved, but that doesn't mean they're stupid either. Right. They're not technologically advanced, but it doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. When it comes to exploration and, and whatnot, um, I think that you you can rely on, on two things uh, about hunting these guys down. And one of them is going to be the uh, evidence that they've been there with the, the gouges of the, the hooks themselves in like stone and in soft rock and materials and whatnot. Um, but I think you can also hunt them down by listening to their, their chittering, their noises, their screeches, their clicking, their, uh, you will be able to know when one is nearby because they use echolocation 
and they have societies. And they're not stealthy. No, I guess they're not. I mean, they're as stealthy as a commoner. Right. Well, they are, except for the fact that they have the natural disadvantage of using echolocation for their movement, and they also tend to climb, uh, climb on rock with hooks. It's just going to naturally be loud. I mean, it does say that they rely on their hearing um, for a lot of perception, so I think it's going to be they're going to be loud in bursts and fits, and then very silent as they listen to the responses, right? Right. Mm-hmm. For combat, I'm clearly, again, we don't have pack tactics, but at this point, we've got enough of, in- of an intelligence. They're going to ambush. They're going to set traps. They're going to have escape routes. They are going to be I would run these guys like big, scary versions of like veggie pygmies, right? Like they're, mm. they've got a very simplistic, rudimentary um, uh, civilization and uh, understanding of the world. But what they do understand, they've mastered because they are a real threat. So I would not separate the party around these guys. They are going to totally capitalize on that. You also have to remember, these are an underdark creature that can climb and they know you can't. They're going to use vertical space in a way that seems natural to them and not natural to typical humanoids. They're going to attack you from the ceiling of a cavern. They're going to pull you up off the ground and drop you because this is something potentially if they're you know hunting armored prey to be able to drop and crack armor like a seagull would. Um, you know, they're going to use every ability they have to their best advantage. And if they know you can't climb and they can, they will use that. Yeah. And they're going to take advantage of their reach as well, right? If they can be on a ceiling where they can reach down and get you with their hook, but you can't reach back up, they're going to use that as well. They're going to keep you at arm's length. Yeah. Suddenly that Goliath is in a lot more danger than the halfling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also not to mention as well, like they, with that reach, Again, hit and run. We're going to rely on that, right? Because they don't aren't going to provoke an attack of opportunity as they hit you with their reach claw hook and then get out of there. So the next one, um, my next monster here is the, it's fairly similar to the bullet, but it's uh, the big brother of, and that is the purple worm. Adam's favorite. That's what he calls himself. You're goddamn right. So these are gargantuan creatures. I made a reference earlier to tremors. Um, these guys look like the graboids from Tremors. They are these monstrous. I don't want to shock you guys. The big worms and the purple. So now that you've recovered from that unique piece of, of information, um, I just want to go really quickly into the fact that they've got these weird spikes that stick out from their sides that I assume they're using to propel themselves along as they burrow because that's their whole shtick. They're underground and they come up and they fucking eat everything. Purple worms burrow. They're traditionally found in the Underdark, but they're often seen on the surface world, too. They are so powerful that they not just push rock out of the way, they also chew it up and eat it. And this thing is a force of nature that treats everything that it comes across as food. And you get that idea by the fact that it is a mouth with a tube behind it. Um, I mean, so am I. Uh, well uh, is that too behind or never mind um, i am a donut uh, uh not touching it um these guys are attracted to loud noises much like the other two creatures that we've just talked about um but that means that for these guys they have a lo- much larger scale they are attracted not to towns and villages but to cities to festivals and to active battlefields and battles have been interrupted because a purple worm has shown up to just eat fucking everything. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, these things are 
um, so dangerous that Drow, Durgar, and Mind Flayers, which are kind of the apex civilizations in the Underdark, have to take special precautions to keep the purple worms at bay. Sometimes it's magical wardings, but sometimes it's actual geographical um, uh, boundaries and whatnot that they've used. In my opinion, the best way to keep a purple worm back is a chasm. Or water. Yeah. Could could a purple worm... It, they don't have a swim speed, but I mean, neither do I. And I'm, <laughs> and, <laughs> right, but we know that there are underground oceans in the Underdark. If you can position yourself well... Like in an island? Around, yeah. Yeah, that's a good you, point. You can really narrow down the number of avenues they have to get in your city in the first place. Yeah, and you got to watch out because these guys are fast. They they've got these toothy beaks that are large enough to swallow a horse whole. And they uh used to have like lamprey like maw which was circular with all the teeth all the way around and rows and rows of it in. Um but it's clear now that they have a mouth with big ass teeth that jut out almost like uh like little tusks. Uh, and they have these beady little eyes that are underdeveloped, which makes sense because they have blind sight and tremor sense and they rely on those. Like I said, they eat rocks and stone. Um, and it's been discovered that their guts are often filled with precious metals and gems that they haven't been able to digest. So if you're crazy enough and you are a treasure hunter, you may want to go hunt a purple worm for the treasure in its gullet. You could Jirax it, just jump into the mouth, attack from the inside. That's problematic, but yes, you could. Um, <laughs> Give it a try. Let us know how it works out. I'll see what your barbarian's going to do. So the thing about the purple worm is that they not just burrow, but they create massive tunnels. And I was trying to wrap my brain around this a little bit because it's not just stone they go through. It's also dirt. But I mean, that dirt is going to be packed pretty hard when a when a purple worm goes by because of the way that they propel themselves and the way that they will push a lot of it out of the way if they're not eating the dirt and the rocks in front of it. Um, they very rarely feel the need to revisit a tunnel because a tunnel is a dead space where there is no sustenance to eat when everything around you, including rocks and dirt, is shit you can eat. So why would it ever go into its own tunnels? As a result, smaller creatures like us rely on these for moderately safe passageways um, in between areas, they, they're often used as little highways between settlements, but just because it won't revisit the tunnel and go down this tunnel again, doesn't mean that they won't hit that tunnel from another angle, burst through the wall of it and eat you there. So it's moderate safety. It's not legitimate safety. There is a mention of crisscrossing tunnels in the monster manual. Uh, and it says that there are some great labyrinths, especially around big populated areas where purple worms have attacked as packs because they often hunt in groups. These are CR 15 creatures. <laughs> that is fucking terrifying. That is oof. Wow. Yeah. So these guys um, are much like the owlbear. These guys are unaligned. Um, they're not neutral like the hook horror because they don't have the intelligence to be. Their intelligence is <clears throat> so um, their strength is through the roof. Their con is through the roof. Their AC and hit points are through the roof because, of course, they are. This thing is a CR-15 gargantuan monstrosity. However, their deck sucks. Their wisdom is sucks. Their charisma sucks. These guys are not going to be making saving throws. The weirdest thing, though, about that, you said their wisdom sucks, which it does, but they're actually proficient wisdom saving throws, which is really interesting. Yeah, the reason, yes, they are. 
it's a weird it was just one of those weird things when i look at that stat block every time i'm like why are they having a big bonus in wisdom saving throws con i get wisdom well because in theory their proficiency modifier is real high and so it's worth pointing out that they they're also natural creatures and a lot of I mean, they're unnatural creatures or supernatural creatures, but they live out in the wilderness. And a lot of creatures that do just get that bonus to um, to wisdom so that they're able to just live out there. The proficiency modifier or the proficiency bonus rather is plus five. They have a, a negative one to wisdom, which brings them to a plus four. The reason that I think it's listed as a saving throw, you know, to be special like that, con two um, uh, gets the proficiency bonus as well is just because these are the things that it's going to be relatively good at compared to like, it doesn't need it for strength and it's not going to get it a proficiency bonus for decks or charisma. Um, so I understand why they would, they would design it that way. Most big ass creatures do have proficiency in a couple of abilities. Like I said, they have blind sight for 30 feet and tremor sense for 60. So they're going to know you're there. These guys are tunnelers, which means that they can burrow through solid rock at half the burrow speed, that's solid rock at half the burrow speed. So anything that's not solid rock um, is at 30 feet. And uh, and they leave a 10-foot diameter tunnel in their wake. Now, they do get multi-attack, one with the bite and one with its stinger because it wasn't fucking scary enough. It also has a thing on the other end of it. Um, <laughs> so the bite is exactly what you would expect it to be for a CR-15 gigantic worm, right? Plus nine to hit, 10-foot reach and a shit ton of piercing damage. Also, there's a swallow mechanic that is pretty standard with all the swallow mechanics all the way through the monster manual. The idea here is that um, you take 66 acid damage at the start of each of the worm's turns, but if the worm takes 30 damage or more in a single turn uh, from inside, then it's going to make a con save, which it, it it's a high con save, but they've got about a 50-50 chance of, of doing it, and or they're going to regurgitate you somewhere within 10 feet of the worm. I'm, I wish they were more specific and, and they would say 10 feet of the mouth of the mouth worm. Of the worm. Yeah. Cause this thing is so fucking huge. Right. Uh, I think it's it, one of those unwritten things, right? Cause it's from the mouth of the word, right? You're being regurgitated out of the mouth by the nature of the word regurgitate. Yeah. But rules as written says that you could be regurgitated 10 feet from yeah. the tail, which just drives me nuts. Um, if the worm dies, then uh, swallowed creatures no longer restrained. Uh, and it can escape by using 20 feet of movement, which, sure, uh, fuck, why not? In my head, purple worms are a lot bigger than they are listed mm -hmm. here. Like, they're gargantuan, but it's only 20 feet to walk out of it. I mean, that's well, just like walking across where you my... are, you're in the first gullet. Yeah, I guess. I it just not have time to digest you yet. Yeah. My purple worms are the size of houses, not the size of cars, right? So um, they what do have this tagging. <laughs> they do have this tail stinger which is just as uh, it's got all the other stuff that the bite does except it does 3d6 plus 9 piercing damage and then forces a con save which is pretty high and then does 12d6 poison damage it's on a brutal. failed save that's massive brutal. or that's, half you know, as much on a on a successful one so yeah that's 60 points of damage from just the tail stinger yeah alone every turn yeah it's it's ugly now in storm king's thunder there's a purple wormling which is a large version of this that i discovered uh speed is 20 feet doesn't get a burrow speed all of the mechanical stats the numbers drop as you would expect them to um now there is 
still the swallow mechanic on the bite for only small or smaller creatures. So your halflings, gnomes, and goblins are still in trouble, but your humans are not. Um, and the tail stinger uh, does not hit with quite as much poison damage because this goes from a CR 15 purple worm to a CR 2 purple worm one. So it's a huge That's step. a massive drop. Yeah. Um, so do you guys have any quests? Let's uh, let's roll initiative on this guy. Nine. I got a six. I got a one. So yeah. you meet a group of Swerfneblin refugees. Their town was wiped out by a purple worm, and they need help finding a safe place to live. They are afraid to proceed alone, but they can pay you in tinkering services along the way. I like that. That's a lot of fun. I'm uh, my big thing, my big plot hook that I was uh, I was going to focus on was there is an item in the DMG called Purple Worm Poison. It costs two thousand gold pieces. And uh, it ha- it can be harvested from a dead or incapacitated purple worm. If you're going to incapacitate it, just the, fucking kill it. Like, yeah. So that alone raises more questions than it answers. Yeah. Because like the concept that you could feasibly incapacitate a purple worm long enough to extract poison and get the fuck away from it alive is mind boggling. Favorite- I'm wondering who has the capacity to farm these things. Who has the power and is strong enough that they could actually just create a feasible farm where they can maybe imprison or at least locate these with enough ease that they could reliably farm these things? I'm just picturing the level 20 druid because I figure it's got to be a druid, right, that has a little farm of these. And he just knows that on Tuesdays and Thursdays, he's got to go out and milk the purple worms. Gross. <laughs> is that what you call it? <laughs> Isn't that what the barbarian does when he gets back to town after an adventure? (laughs) (laughs) So um, the fun thing about the purple worm poison is that it has the same DC 19 con save that the stinger does and does the same 12 D six fuck you poison damage. Ow. Yeah. Yeah. So that it is legitimately lifted right out of its stat block that this poison is the exact same venom essentially that the, the stinger has. So, so you've got to, Saddle up quietly behind the purple worm, grip it with both hands, and milk the fuck out of it so that you can get that really expensive discharge. <laughs> Some really disturbing images to be had there. Brad, do you have a Adam. you have a plot hook? Mine was actually quite similar. It wasn't necessarily milky, but it was basically somebody is trying to perform a study on these things, right? You've got a mad mage who just wants to know more about these things and their movements. So that they can try and better predict where they will come up and be prepared for their arrivals. So basically, they want you to see if you basically you're supposed to track one down and follow its movements. Basically, trace out the tunnels that it leaves behind to see if there's any sort of method to the madness. Actually, even better, let's tie it into Acquisitions Incorporated and make it a uh, make it a insurance company. Right, you got some actuaries or an insurance company that wants to hire you on to uh, basically try and predict the futures for their own insurance purposes. Yeah, I I I like that. I mean, the the purple worm is going to be enough of an uh, of a presence in the wor- in the world that everybody's going to be aware of it, and there will be organizations that say, "Okay, this has to be dealt with one way or the other." Right? Yeah. Jeff, do you have any insights about role playing for purple worms? So one of the things that you want to remember with these guys is that they are a force of nature. They're not something that your party encounters. It's something that happens to your party. 
Um, I'd also like to point out that these guys, as much as they're iconic for borrowing, they're faster above the ground than they are below the ground. It could be fun if you're that kind of sadistic DM to put your players in a circumstance where they think they're being smart by luring it out onto the surface, only for them to discover that this thing's even faster now. I think I was next, wasn't I? Or was that Yes, you? you were. Yeah. Okay. Nope, you're up. Um, my big thing for role-playing a purple worm is the fact that they rely on their tremor sense. They rely on, and they're dumb. They're dumb as all hell. So they rely on their blind sense and their tremor sense and, and moving through the rocks and whatnot. So I think their target changes because everybody's the same size to a purple worm. It doesn't matter if you're a Goliath or a goblin, you are, you are a light snack at best. You are a, a mild taste and they will get a full mouthful of um, buildings and rocks and dirt and stuff as well. So as much as they will come at you because you're digestible, um, they're going to go after what's making the biggest noise. If I'm going to fight a purple worm, I'm going to head to a waterfall. I'm going to go try to have um, the top of a cliff so that I can have all of these uh, landslides that I trigger. That's going to mask my location really well and have it focused on other things. If you want to get its attention, you don't make the most noise. You make the biggest thump. Fireball suddenly becomes a distraction technique. Exactly. And that's something that I would think about with all of the thunder effects. Shatter uh, was the one that came to mind for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what's the uh, what's the one where you do the thunder damage and teleport? Thunderstep. That's got to be one of the best ones. Yeah. Because it's going to send the purple worm to where you used to be. Draw it away. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, there's not much ad for role playing, right? These things, they're dumb. Like you said, they go for whatever they can eat. If there's a big factory nearby that's producing, maybe there's a mill. It's probably going to go for that first, right? It's going to have all these grinding gears, all these noises to go for something like that. This leads me to think that Zverfneblin and Duragar are going to get attacked by these a lot more than Drow. Because they mine. Yeah. Because they're noisier. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas some civilizations in the other dark in the underdark, like um Myconids, for example, will almost be completely ignored. Yeah. Unless they're just so unfortunate they happen to be in the path. They're exactly. not going to be targeted. They may just get hit out of nowhere. Uh, any insights on how to uh play with the exploration pillar when it comes to purple worms? Was I first or second? Yeah, I don't know. No, you're first. You're number one. Okay, I'm, I'm sure. Third. So if, you're, if your party is traversing the Underdark, trying to get from one place to another, and they're passing through natural tunnels for days, but then suddenly the tunnels are perfectly round and smell different, that's a big red flag. Yeah, I, I think so. Although I think it's also going to be an indication that you might be close to a civilization. Right, because civilizations now, will crop up around these uh, ways to navigate, and that's the thing about the Underdark is navigation changes all the time. You don't have stars to navigate by, so you rely on tunnels and landmarks. And the Underdark is always shifting, in large part because of things that burrow. Yeah do do you think uh, purple worms leave behind a slime trail or something like a wormwood? I don't see why not. It doesn't say that specifically, but I mean, sure, absolutely. At the very least, this the excretion would probably smell different, which is why I put it in there. It may not be a good or a bad smell, but it would probably be a unique one. The worms poop. I mean, what goes in mm. must come out. They're not adding it all to their mass. Yes, they absolutely do. I've held worms and had them produce fecal matter in my hands. So yes, just a, yeah, it's just a matter of they're removing whatever they can and nutrients and leaving the rest behind. So, you know, they're just going to be pressing it out to the walls instead of leaving it in a trail behind them, probably. Well, do you think that maybe there would be some sort of 
nomadic mining culture. I, I use mining, you know, loosely here so that there would be a group of, let's say, Duragar who follow the purple worms because every time that they poop, it's, there's going to be precious gems and metals in there, uh, but yeah. mostly but mostly undigested rock, right? So these guys would be following the fecal trail for easy riches. Yeah, I mean, it'd be worth following these things anyways for just exposed veins of ores, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right, if there's a new tunnel board, there's a good chance it may expose some ores or veins that you didn't know were there before. Any thoughts about, sorry, did you have a unique thing for exploration, Brad? No, I mean, again, you're following the tunnels, right? These things aren't exactly subtle. So whatever's there, it's going to the clues are really fairly obvious for, uh, I mean, you're, I know most characters aren't going to have tremor sense, but if this thing is within, what, maybe half a kilometer of you, you're probably going to feel some sort of vibration as this thing's shaking the earth. Yeah. Okay. So do we have any, uh, any unique ideas about combat then? So it's easy to want to say your group is fighting a purple worm. You know, as has been discussed with, you know, conversations about dynamic encounters and everything, I like the idea of the purple worm not actually being the target necessarily, um, you know, an, an encounter where, you know, for example, we talked earlier about hookers and about how, you know, you could want to collect carapace or claws or something. You know, if you want to make it interesting, challenge the group to take down a purple worm before it can kill all of something you're after. Put a timer on this just to make it that much more of a different kind of standard encounter challenge. I I really like that. Um, I'm an evil DM sometimes. Um, I don't know if anyone would expect that from me. But shocking. my level two party ran across a purple worm that was hunting them and their NPCs through the desert. And they learned really quickly to move very softly through sand. <laughs> Dune uh, vibes. Yep. So they had to tiptoe and move at half speed through it. And then they came across a huge field of shriekers, which are <laughs> little mushroom fungi <laughs> that yeah. make a shit ton of noise if you disturb them. And so there were a number of uh, dexterity checks and acrobatics checks and dex saves. And it's safe to say that they and their NPCs did not all make these checks and it summoned the purple worm at which point it became a skill challenge. They knew they had to get to a certain place beyond the shriek, the field of shriekers and then freeze and the purple worm should leave them alone. Um, but they were running around trying to, uh, trying to get to this as quickly as possible while distracting the purple worm. They lost NPCs. Uh, Megan's character nearly got, eaten she had to make an incredibly difficult deck save and fortunately we had some inspiration dice from a bard um, that helped that out but it was real sketchy dave at level two uh realized that there was a in my world random portals open up semi-frequently um and they're one way and if you try to go back through it then it's an instant kill you get zapped to dust dave realized <laughs> there was a portal nearby so he raced the purple worm to the portal and then dove out of the way at the last moment. The purple worm went into the, like, touched the portal and turned to dust. So Dave at level two killed a purple worm. He's very happy about it. Ne never rolled to hit, but that's the worm. That's the point at which you're happy as a DM that you didn't um, decide to run this campaign with experience points? Yes. Oh, yeah. my, my God, yeah. But, yeah, and Dave turned to me and says, so I'm like level eight now, right? Like, no. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I'm going to take the opposite uh, attack to Jeff where, you know, you're fighting against time. I'm going to 
put my players in a combat in maybe an open desert or something where there's this horde or this army that's coming towards them. They see them on the horizon. And just as they start to be within, you know, distance of lobbing the first arrows or something like that, the worm's going to come out, just completely consume this wave of enemies that's coming towards them, dive back down. And you've actually managed to avoid combat simply by fate. And it's which, going to lead to a set piece for later, right? Now you know which, that this creature's here. Right. And when you combine yours and Adam's together, it really puts a point on the fact that with a lot of these high challenge rating monsters that not all campaigns will get to the point where they're able to fight them, you don't always have to have high CR monsters be a combat encounter. There are ways yeah. to bring in epic level creatures at lower levels so that your players get a chance to interact with them without it just being a TPK or having to make them wait until they hit level 15 to see the, you know, some of the cool stuff. Yeah, honestly, if you rely on skill challenges and environmental difficulties, for especially for gargantuan things, but I, I was in a campaign years ago and we were all level 12 and there was a lich that was at the top of his tower doing stuff. And all we needed to do was get the gems into the appropriate slots to create a force field to stop the, the Lich's plan. We weren't there to kill the Lich. We just needed to do that. So we faced a Lich at level 12 and succeeded because we did environmental, um, um, like we had environmental impacts and it was, a, it was a skill challenge, but it was tense and it was fun and it was interesting. And we never drew swords because if you're going to draw your sword, it's already too late. So um, my last thought on this is uh, I really want to see your players you know, walking across a desert or or through the hilly grassland, and they look over and they see a bullet leaping through the air, just bounding Hulk style towards <laughs> oh, you. I know where this is going. And and they're like, "That's fucking weird." And they get ready to fight it, and that's when the purple worm shows up, and the bullet is running from the purple worm. This but is now, this, yeah, yes. this is the Star Wars moment of the big the big thing getting getting eaten by the even bigger thing. Yeah, exactly. And uh and I think the I think the bullet just like leave you alone. And but I mean you guys were idiots and you brought a carriage with horses, so you're making more noise than the jumping bullet at this point. So um the moment the bullet gets close to you, it would be smart for it to then just start to burrow because you guys are on the surface making noise. So um do we have any final thoughts before we jump to our uh, last ad break? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. Yeah, I think environmental threat, right? Have them be in the world. Like we said, you don't have to fight them, but at least have them be part of your world. They're interesting. They're iconic. They're classic, but they're not complicated. No. And that's relatively true for all of the monsters we've discussed so far today. So let's uh, let's jump into the last ad break before we wrap this episode up. If you've been inspired by the conversation in this episode, please feel free to reach out and share your creativity and ideas with us and the rest of the community. You can reach us on Facebook and Instagram, or on our subreddit, r slash it's a mimic. Also, if you're feeling particularly generous, please follow and subscribe and leave us positive reviews, likes and comments. Engagement like that help us pop up on search engines and keep the show running. There are a lot of great classic monsters in Dungeons and Dragons that have earned their reputations. If you're ever feeling bored or in need of inspiration for something to do in your campaign, you could do a lot worse than digging into the lore of some of the more iconic creatures and their history for inspiration. For me, just reading about a creature's D&D history can give me lots of ideas for quests or not so random encounters. When all else fails, when you're doing your session prep, look to the past. Just because it's been done by someone or by you in other campaigns 
or even in the same campaign, doesn't mean it isn't fun or worth doing again. Classics are classics for a reason. Yeah, movies, music, monsters, the three M's. <laughs> all right, so that's all for this discussion on monstrosities. Make sure that you subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we're going to sit down for the first part of our discussion on gem dragons. Thank you for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, a store with some It's a Mimic merch, and a Patreon. This episode and others can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Please check the show notes for this episode to see links, time codes, and credits, and don't forget to reach out and share your own inspirations. For me, what what that uh, brain fart? Sorry. Why? Yeah, yeah. Take a pee break in the middle too. <laughs> oh, okay. I've been doing <laughs> that constantly. Under your desk? <laughs> yeah, just into the in the Mountain Dew bottle. It's got a, con- a condom catheter on. <laughs> okay. See you next time.